organizations have been hiring women and people of color over and over again for decades and diversity has not increased. Why is that? It's because the culture within the organization makes it impossible for them to thrive. I'm David Green and this is episode two of series 17 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. You just heard Joan C. Williams, distinguished law professor at the University of California, Hastings College of Law and director for the Center of Work-Life Law, and author of a brilliant new book, Bias Interrupted, Creating Inclusion for Real and for Good. Joan is dedicated to propagating an approach to diversity and inclusion that delivers real impact for the business and ensures real change is made. People, the heads of diversity and inclusion are experts in diversity and inclusion. Um, But the If you have bias in your business systems, typically the heads of DEI don't own the business systems. They don't own performance evaluations. You know, that's HR. They don't own uh, hiring. That's recruiting. And so this is part of the organizational change, um, the organizational change challenge. I have heads of DEI telling me a, a lot I have, I don't, I have influence, not power. And one of my strong messages to CEOs is that if you're serious about this as a business goal, you have to give, set someone up for success and give them the authority and the power they need to address the problem. Throughout this episode, Joan and I discuss how to connect diversity and inclusion initiatives to business metrics that matter with case studies from companies around the world. We look at the five patterns of bias that repeatedly emerge across organizations and industries, and the concept of bias interrupters, what they are, and how to use them in everyday scenarios to reduce the impact of bias. Joan and I also look at the ethical and legal challenges of measuring diversity data, and why these challenges are not a good enough excuse for not doing the work. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't say have a company saying we're not going to look and see if we have cybersecurity vulnerabilities because that might that might lead to legal risk. But you just go, what? <laughs> but that's the kind of thing that's done in DEI. It makes no sense. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Joan C. Williams, Distinguished Professor of Law at the Hastings College of Law at the University of California and the author of an eagerly anticipated new book, Bias Interrupted, Creating Inclusion for Real and for Good, uh, which is published in November to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Welcome to the show, Joan. It's great to have you on. Can you provide listeners with a brief introduction to you and your work? Yes. Well, I'm a law professor in San Francisco, and I've studied social inequality for pretty much 40 years. Um, And what this book is designed for people in organizations that have been working to create diversity and inclusion, many of them for over a decade, but sadly have seen very few results. This book is a roadmap to actually produce results. And the book, I believe, is out on the 16th of November, which is in a few weeks' time and is available to pre-order now. Um, Indeed. What's the key message that you, or messages, that you want to leave readers uh, with um, having read the book? The key message really uh, reflects this. If a business had a problem with sales, they wouldn't address it by holding a series of deep, sincere conversations about how much everybody values sales and 
declare National Celebrate Sales Month and expect anything to change. That's just not how businesses do things. But unfortunately, a lot of diversity and inclusion efforts have been essentially that. When businesses uh, have problems with sales, they use evidence, metrics, and persistence to solve the problem. And to solve diversity and inclusion problems, you have to use those same business tools. Because if a business has a problem with diversity and inclusion, typically it's because subtle forms of bias are constantly being transmitted day after day after day in the business systems. And people are going to have the best intentions in the world. But if those business systems remain unchanged, the business is going to remain unchanged. And that's what we've seen. You, in the book, you actually pose a number of questions which you describe as unspoken. Um, you know, and, and a lot of our listeners are working in, in, in HR roles, maybe in diversity and inclusion roles within organizations. You know, in some respects, what we say on this on in this discussion is we're preaching to the converted a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk about ways about how they can really get buy-in uh, uh, as well. But some of these unspoken questions are probably questions that they might get sometimes from very senior business leaders. So I thought we'd tackle some of them, a couple of these now, and and just you give your response to these and 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 maybe help guide our um, our listeners around what to do when they get these questions. So. Mm-hmm. So maybe the first one is, you know, you know, why do some groups need to be politically savvier to succeed? This reflects two of the f- five basic patterns of implicit bias that commonly play out in organizations. Uh, the first uh, I call the tightrope, and that's really that um, college-educated white men, typically they need to be ambitious and authoritative in order to succeed. But Every other group has to find ways of being ambitious and authoritative that's seen as kind of appropriate by white men. And that's harder. That's harder because, uh, for example, just to give one example in the U.S., um, Latinas um, in the U.S. often are called feisty. Um, Now, feisty is a super interesting word. It basically says you're behaving in an authoritative way and I'm finding it cute. So you have to find a way to be authoritative that actually is coded by the recipient as authoritative. That's harder. That's one way in which some groups have to be politically savvier than others in order to succeed. And the other way is is really obvious. It's just if there are um, open racial stereotypes that um, people have to uh, be savvier in order to succeed. For example, a common stereotype of Asian Americans is that they are really great at technical tasks, but not really for leadership. And so they often find that they get kind of stalled in technical roles, but find it very difficult to, um, to gain leadership roles. And they have to kind of be politically savvy and work behind the scenes in order to make that happen. And in a way that... Um, You know, white men also have to be politically savvy to go into leadership, but often there's kind of a presumption they're a pretty good fit. And so uh, they have to be end up often being less um, astute in order to smooth their way. Yeah. And, and, you know, some of the other questions that that you talk about and again in the the book, um, 
you know, you, I'm sure you've, you get the, isn't it natural? And, it, you know, I hear this from, from people in companies that I've worked, isn't it natural and inevitable that people who work harder go further? It, it sounds, it sounds that's not the case. What employers really have to ask themselves um, is um, how they're defining the ideal worker. Um, if you define the ideal worker as someone who is always available for work and you're really describing two sets of people. One is men, men married to homemakers. That works great for men married to homemakers. Um, and that works great for people without children. So if you want to select and promote only those two groups based on their ability to be always available rather than the level of talent in your workforce, then definitely define the ideal worker in that old-fashioned way. But if you do that, you will be systematically excluding women and less commonly recognized, you'll be systematically excluding many younger men who really feel that being involved with children's daily care is part of being a good father. And you know what? If that isn't possible, they will not tell you that they're leaving for work-family balance. They will tell you they're leaving for a great opportunity. Whereas women actually who are leaving because they feel they've hit the glass ceiling, they will tell you they're leaving for work-family balance. Each sex gives a kind of explanation that's expected from that sex. And so no wonder companies are confused and they think, oh, women value work-life balance and men don't because the, the companies are getting very confusing information. But the research shows that younger men will leave if they feel they can't um, attain their family goals at the same time as they pursue their careers. And I imagine this is becoming even more, or will become more, it probably is already, but even become even more complex as we move more to hybrid working. We've got to be careful that people who maybe work more remotely more often aren't penalized versus those that are in the office. You almost get presenteeism, I guess, or that's very astute, David. That is one of the challenges. The, the transition to hybrid work can really enhance diversity because studies show that women prefer, men and women actually prefer a hybrid work at the same rates, but men, more women prefer um, full-time hybrid, uh, full-time remote than men do. In the US, it's also true that people of color, especially African-Americans, prefer remote work. And so by being able to offer people remote work far more commonly than was true before the pandemic, employers can really enhance the diversity of their workforce. But as you point out, although well-managed remote work can enhance diversity, poorly managed remote work can decrease diversity because of what we call on-site favoritism. If the people who are working remote are out of sight, out of mind, then and the people who are working on site are predominantly a very specific group, then you're going to just go in the wrong direction from a diversity standpoint. It's a bit of, it's a it's a real minefield, isn't it? Because I guess a lot of organisations, as they move to whatever structure of hybrid work that they want, and let's be honest, a one size one size isn't going to fit all in every company. Well, it's not going to one size is not going to fit all. It's almost going to be like an experiment in terms of they're going to have to be looking at these these aspects and, and intentionally managing them so that they don't create more bias. 
Um, they are. And one thing that will really help in that regard is something that organizations should be doing anyway. Because one of the things that our data show again and again is that um, white men report fair access to career enhancing assignments at stratospheric levels, like 80 to 90% of white men say I have have fair access to career enhancing assignments. But um, other groups don't feel the same way. Um, For example, in one group, um, only 53% of black women said I have fair access to career enhancing assignments. So that's a big difference. And in order to address this, which is a really an endemic issue, companies should be keeping track of who gets those plum assignments in order to make sure that there's equal access. And now with the transition to hybrid, this is even more important. Companies should be keeping track by demographic group of who gets access to these plum assignments, and they should keep be keeping a track keep keeping track by remote versus on site as well to make sure that the people who are on site aren't getting the lion's share of what's really the choice work. You talked about the the research that you've done, and and you touched on one of the five patterns of bias that you've explored. Uh, you found through that research. Let's dig into those um, now. So I think a lot of this research comes from your your workplace experiences survey. And you've been doing this research for over a decade. You've got some great longitudinal data then surveying almost 18,000 people. You know, what have you learned about bias through this work? And I think, as I said, this gives us an opportunity maybe to, to dig into those five patterns as well. Well, what we found quite simply is the same five patterns emerge over and over and over and over and over again in company after company and in industry after industry. The Workplace Experiences Survey will give you in a 10-minute survey uh, a read on whether the five patterns are playing out, where they are playing out. Is it in performance evaluations or in access to opportunities and the impact on outcome measures like performance and intent to stay. So it's um, really quite different from the ordinary climate survey or even the inclusion survey of like, do you feel included at work? This one starts out from the social science on precisely how bias commonly plays out. And as you know, we've been studying this for 10, 15 years. So there, there the five basic patterns, the first we call prove it again. Some groups have to prove themselves more than others. And um, the group that's whose experience diverges most from white men's is typically women of color with men of color and white women in between. Um, but in one sample, for example, one third of white men said they had to prove themselves more than their colleagues of similar education and experience, but two-thirds of women did, and two-thirds of people of color did. So that's the first pattern. Um, The second two we've mentioned, the tightrope and racial stereotypes. Um, The the fourth pattern is the maternal wall, um, gender bias triggered by motherhood, which is actually the strongest form of gender bias. Um, and then the final pattern, <clears throat> which once again is triggered both by race and by gender, is what we call tug of war, which is when bias against a group fuels conflict within the group. 
for example, if really there's only room for one, then of course that group of people will be very competitive with others of their group in order to get that one choice spot. Whereas for um, you know certain other groups, there, there's not just there's not just one. So those those five patterns um, play very commonly play out. And the challenge for um, employers and uh, is that they have you have to introduce you have to interrupt all five. You know if you interrupt only one, if you interrupt, prove it again, but, you know, still the tightrope trips people up, that's not going to help. In, interesting. I mean, have you seen any of these biases trend up or trend down over the 15 years or so that you've been doing this work? Or or is it been so bumpy that, that, that there's no real pattern in there? Well, uh, I'm sad to report that actually tightrope bias has increased for women in recent decades. The the sense that the good woman is modest, self-effacing, and nice, a good team player, and the good man is competitive, ambitious, and direct, a real leader, that has actually increased in recent decades. And unfortunately, we do not see um, a diminution in these patterns, partly, I think, because the tools that people have been use, using in the DEI context um, have not been really designed um, uh, in a sort of scientific way to excise these specific things that we now know are going on. When we come back in just a moment, Joan shares examples from companies who have successfully developed diversity and inclusion initiatives that deliver real business impact. Thanks to Degreed for sponsoring this series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Degreed is a workforce upskilling platform for one in three Fortune 50 companies and connects all your learning, talent development and internal mobility opportunities to intelligence on the skills your business needs next. It does it all in one simple, fluid, skill-building experience that's powered by your people's expertise and interests so you can transform your workforce from within. Founded in 2012, Degreed is headquartered in Pleasanton, California with additional offices in Salt Lake City, New York, London, Amsterdam, and Brisbane. To learn more, visit degreed.com. Welcome back to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast with Joan C. Williams, distinguished law professor and author of a brilliant new book, Bias Interrupted. Now, back to the conversation. And I think we're going to dig into a, a lot of this now. You know, I think let's get those those five bias types out as we have. Um, let's then dig into how companies can actually tackle this. But I think one thing that was really interesting there is that you look at the impacts on performance measures, um, which is which, as you said, you don't get from the typical employee engagement, diversity, and inclusion surveys. Yeah. You know, again, these nicely to the next question around the business case. So people often treat the business case for tackling bias in the workplace is fairly self-explanatory, a given. But has your work shed any light on the urgency for tackling bias? You know, for example, have you uncovered or, or can you demonstrate any new business benefits? And how can chief diversity officers and HR get buy-in? We said 
you know, chief diversity officer in HR, they get this. They're trying to move the dial within their organizations. How can they get buy-in and deliver on their diversity, equity, and inclusion goals? Um, this is such an important question, in many ways the key question, because, of course, people in uh, heads of DEI and HR have been diligently trying to do this for many, many years. Um, the, the business case for diversity is important. Um, but the first thing to recognize is that even many companies that are convinced of the business case founder because it's a very complex organizational challenge to actually yeah. deliver on diversity goals. So just believing that you should, you know, that the company would be better off with more diversity is not enough. Um, <clears throat> but it is important that the CEO understand and be able to articulate many, many times, as Cotter has taught us, um, what the business case is. And I give examples in the book. For example, in Clorox, the head of DEI um, worked with employee resource groups to open up new markets um, Asian, among Asian Americans and among um, Latinos in the United States for Clorox's products because they understood that people at Clorox from those groups understood what kinds of products their communities would buy. That is a really good example. You have to be very concrete in the business case and say, not in general, companies make more money if, but this is how diversity is crucial to our mission. And I give many more examples in the book. Um, but the second question, once you have that business case, is really to um, help persuade people from, you know, in, in companies, it varies different, differs from who you have to, have to persuade, but often from the CEO on down, um, why you need to do, um, to apply this bias interrupters approach of evidence, metrics, and persistence, rather than just you know, hiring me to come give a speech for tens of thousands of dollars and call it a day. Um, and the way to get that kind of buy-in is where the importance of metrics come in. Um, you need to be keeping very specific metrics about the document, the problem. And I'll give you one example. This example is from a, uh, a law firm in the United States. And in law firms, um, the point of the coin of the realm is billable hours. You know, how many billable hours have you worked? And so, really important for young lawyers is to be able to show that they've worked a lot of billable hours. Well, one company that we we're working with looked at what had happened under COVID, and they found that white men were actually getting two to three hundred more billable hours a year than people of color and 100 more hours a year than white women. And that basically means that, you know, you can do everything else perfect, but you're not going to retain and advance your women and people of color. That is a metric that kind of says it all. And one of the kind of the core of the bias interrupters model is to pinpoint exactly those kinds of metrics that will help, that we have found are really persuasive in bringing people along. I'll give you another example um, from, uh, from another company, which was we did an analysis of their performance evaluations. 
And we found that only 9.5% of the people of color had leadership mentioned in their performance evaluations. And um, that was over 70 percentage points lower than white women. And so we did a really simple bias interrupters intervention. We redesigned the performance evaluation form and we helped them develop a one hour training. Um, and we had absolutely dramatic results because, again, we started out with the evidence. Um, in year two, 100% of the people of color had leadership mentioned in their performance evaluations, and that predicted promotion. Um, so you have to develop, this is the power of evidence and the power of metrics. Suddenly, you're not just not talking about some vague thing that might or might not exist. When you have the right metric, people see in black and white, oh, we have a problem. Even if someone's got a hypothesis or an opinion, let's get some data to actually evidence that. Absolutely. In this case, the last case there, you said it highlighted clearly a big problem. So let's make the intervention and let's measure the impact that it, that it has. And that's quite a big impact. And that's how to, that's how to build, that's how to get buy-in is by figuring out what that metric is and the book will provide a lot of guidance and then gathering that data. And in terms of the work that you do, I mean, I, the stuff I read about bias, you, you, people talk about conscious bias and unconscious bias. Are you, are you looking at, looking at both and, 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 you know, maybe you can address that in, in what why do typical approaches to tackling bias in the workplace fall short and and I don't know if it covers both those types of bias you know I just don't think that's a useful distinction at, at some level I mean what the research shows is that privileged groups um, know a lot less about less privileged groups than vice versa so being unconscious of bias is literally part of being a privileged group <clears throat> it's not an excuse for why you remain clueless. <laughs> um, so um, the the one of the challenges to approaching bias is, first of all, people have been very focused on the what's called the implicit association test, which is one specific social science instrument that is an online test that um, measures response rates of like people associate an oven mitt with a woman faster than a man but a baseball mitt with a man faster than a woman. So that's a measure of bias. But the problem with the implicit association test is it doesn't necessarily describe what's going on in the workplace. That's the workplace experiences survey describes what's going on in the workplace. And increasingly what companies do is that they give their the workplace experiences sur survey to everybody and use their own data um, in when they're um, training for bias. And that's very persuasive. Um, rather than just some abstract test online that doesn't describe workplaces in general or your workplace in, in particular. The other thing that has, uh, there are a couple other problems. Number one, people have treated um, the problem of bias as something that can be trained with a one-shot training or a once-a-year training. And, you know, you can't change a company culture by doing anything once. Even if straight from God's lips, you cannot change a culture by doing anything once. So that's been another problem. And the, uh, the last problem really is that a lot of these bias trainings, they're just like a college lecture, um, or they're just talking about how we all need to be more sensitive to each other. Neither of them provides to-dos tomorrow. And so when we do bias training, we typically, we use data 
And we give people really concrete scenarios of how bias commonly plays out in everyday workplace interactions um, that resonate with their workplace. And then have people sit around in groups of six and brainstorm how they would feel comfortable interrupting the bias the next time they see it. And the research shows that that kind of bias training um, can have an effect and is um, particularly effective when it's combined again with um, interrupting bias in the organizational systems. That kind of approach can work. And everyone in the organization needs to be intentional about tackling bias. But And I ask this question as a middle-aged white man myself. But white men have a really important role to play in this, don't they? Um, they really do. Yeah, and it's, it's not about letting others do it. You've got to get involved and highlight some of these changes because particularly, as you said, a lot of these white men are in leadership roles. They've got a, they've got a really important role to play. I mean, what would you say to... White, a white man in an organization who knows there's a problem, but maybe is a little bit too afraid to get involved because they think that they don't understand uh, the challenges enough. Well, uh, I, would, I would say read the book because then you'll understand what's going on. What the, the, one of the basic messages of the book is that, you know, we like to think that our organizations are meritocracies. Um, but what the data show is that they're not actually. Um, that white men very often have to prove themselves less than any other group, that their politics are much simpler than any other group, that they they are benefited by in-group favoritism where white men, particularly white men from the same background, um, give each other the benefit of the doubt and they don't give other people the benefit of the doubt. And that kind of in-group favoritism does not operate in the same way for any group other than white men. Um, and so it's very important to recognize that the central message of DEI is um, that we need to create true meritocracies. Um, the, other, uh, the other point, I think, of, to white men is that the research shows that there's only one group in the workplace that can advocate for diversity without threatening career detriments, and that's white men. And then finally, I think it's important um, to recognize and to really clearly articulate that, you know, we're talking about social forces here. We're talking about we're all fish swimming up a stream and some people are swimming with the current and some people are swimming against the current. But social forces aren't everything that makes a human life. You know, it's not as if white men just, you know, born on top and float you know, float through the air up to heaven. That's that's not real life. White men face real challenges. First of all, some of them are um, from very different backgrounds than most of the other. Class issues are a really important issue, and um, and some people face psychological challenges, personal pain. We're not talking about everything, but we are talking about whether you're swimming with the current or against the current. And I think that's really important for white men to recognize. Yeah. So it's a really important point that it's, 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 it's white men who can raise these issues, maybe more so than anyone else, but as you said, without being essentially penalized. We, uh, our company, we're very much in people analytics. So it's about using data to, to drive performance of the business and obviously for the workforce and using it to highlight, as, as you're doing in your work, issues around diversity and inclusion that can then be tackled with, with, with action. 
We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you're looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the MyHR Future Academy. It's a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you'll see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gaps, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Now let's go back to the conversation with Joan, where we'll discuss the influence of workplace networks on inclusion. Your approach, as you said, really much starts with, with ca- tackling the current state of bias uh, in the organisation, and that depends on, on data. You know, what are the, can you tell us a little bit more about the four key points where we have to, to measure progress and how organisations should go about this? It's not just about hiring, which is a, a, a lot of the answer that I hear. Yes. Um- Organizations have been hiring women and people of color over and over again for decades, and diversity has not increased. Why is that? It's because the culture within the organization makes it impossible for them to thrive, and they leave over and over and over again. Hiring is really important, and there are still some industries where that have to work really hard um, to hire proportionate numbers of women and people of color. Um, and for that matter, people from blue collar backgrounds, because again, class is very important here. Uh, but um, they also, and you know, there's a full set of bias interrupters in hiring. Um, and the just to give another example on metrics, um, for companies should be keeping what we call process metrics. So with respect to hiring, you should be keeping track of who is in the original pool, who's who got survived resume review, who survived the interview, and who got offers and who turned them down. And that's because if you if your original pool is non-diverse, that's a totally different fix than if no woman ever survives the interview because every woman is either too meek or too much. That's the tightrope problem there. Those are totally different problems to solve. And so you need to be analytical and to figure out which of these problems that you have, or whether you have or all of them, in which case you can go one by one. Um, but in addition to hiring, we, I, we and other researchers have found that um, although performance evaluations are very important, and it's very important not to eliminate them, um, they also powerfully transmit bias if they are not, if the bias is not interrupted. Luckily, we have open access online at the Bias Interrupters webpage, um, a simple two-page document <clears throat> that when read out loud, we found increased the performance evaluations of white women, black women, and black men. Um, just, and that takes oh, less, than, uh, less than 10 minutes, probably five. So there are effective ways to interrupt, interrupt bias in performance evaluations, but if you're not doing them, um, uh, you probably um, need to think about doing them. Then we've talked also about access to opportunities. And that's uh, women of all races tend to do more of what we call the office housework, uh, the non-promotable tasks. Um, and so there's also a toolkit online for interrupting bias in assignments. 
And then um, in many ways, comp is the easy part because interrupting bias in comp, that's just a math problem. And it's a math problem that Salesforce solved and many other companies have solved. There's companies around that can look at your comp and see if there are untoward patterns. And so what companies need to do is to really figure out where this bias is playing out and to um, use evidence and metrics to, to, to attack it where it is. And have you had your work sort of touched on looking at networks within companies? So, you know, homophily, for example, looking at homophily and, 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 and also maybe looking at promotions and, and, and looking at networks of, let's say we look at gender at the moment, networks of, of male, um, male employees at a certain level versus female employees at a certain level and, and, and the impact that they may or may not have on who gets promoted? Have you looked at sort of networks as well? Yes, networks are. Um, it it, it very, varies from company to company, but in many companies, who gets promoted depends on who's in the right networks. And as you point out, homophily is is really a fancy name for just the simple principle that like attracts like. The single strongest determinant of who is in your social network is similarity, and in most companies. Um, white men from college-educated families are um, dominate at the top. In the default mode, who is going to be in their networks is other white men just like them. Um, and uh, it, the, the research also shows that uh, white men who have what are called entrepreneurial networks, networks where they know a lot of people from different groups, it's called the strength of weak ties. They don't know these people well, but they have a very broad network. Those men tend to get promoted early. But the research also shows that women with identical networks don't get promoted early unless they have a sponsor, someone who is willing to spend, spend their political capital to help the woman. And so um, networks and sponsorship programs are very important. Now, often, if they're the only thing that a company is doing, that's not going to be effective. But yeah. as part of an integrated approach, an effective sponsorship program will often be very important, especially for access to opportunities. It's, I mean, it seems that, you know, one of the questions uh, that, that we get is, you know, what data should we be looking at to support our efforts around diversity and inclusion? A lot of what you said, that data is available. It's just a case of getting the right metrics, as you said. You know, understanding what the problem is, if there is a problem, and then actually taking action on it, which is, I guess, classic use of of, of data and metrics. Hey, it's just you know, it's it's just it's just analytics, data analytics. We do it in every other field. Um, one of the things that um, is flagged in the book is that sometimes when um, people in HR, DEI try to get these data points, they get pushback, at least in the United States, from lawyers. And we actually have heard the same thing about lawyers in Europe saying, oh, we couldn't possibly collect that data because the legal risk is too great. And actually, in the, uh, um, the forthcoming issue of the Harvard Business Review magazine, I report on how to keep diversity metrics while controlling for legal risk. And so that should be out in um, December, probably December, maybe February. But it's very often in the United States, you have kind of a mid-level in-house lawyer stopping the head of HR in her tracks. Um, and the bottom line is that, you know, there is some risk to keeping these metrics. There is some risk in not keeping them. 
the risk is that the first time you'll ever find out you have a problem is in a plaintiff's class action brief. But there are, and companies typically have protocols for keeping sensitive information and handling it. And this is no, this is the same as every other sort of sensitive information. And if a company's not willing to shoulder any risk for its diversity and inclusion uh, efforts, it's just, it's just learn something important about itself. It doesn't care. Companies shoulder legal risk every day of the week for business goals they actually care about. It's, it's interesting, actually. We had uh, Professor Rob Cross on the show a few weeks ago. Um, and he, as you probably know, he does a lot of work around network analysis. And he says that companies, no one would give him ethnicity data before uh, the George Floyd murder last year. It's now companies are starting to provide ethnicity data. And, you, and as I'm sure you'll cover in this article, there is a way of limiting access to that data to, to certain people. There's ways of anonymizing that data. So you're not, it's not about individuals, it's about patents. So, and, and as you said, it's the same with any other data, sensitive data that a company collects. So you wonder sometimes if it's just an excuse. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't say have a company saying we're not going to look and see if we have cybersecurity vulnerabilities because that might that might lead to legal risk. Then you just go, what? <laughs> but that's the kind of thing that's done in DEI. It, it makes no sense. Yeah, it, as you, and as you said right at the start when you were talking, when you used the analogy with sales, not doing well on diversity inclusion is a business. It's a risk to the business. You know, sure. as not yes, doing well on absolutely. sales is a risk to the business. And maybe if companies looked at it like that, then we wouldn't be in the, exactly right. the challenges yeah. where we are. We talked a little bit about how HR can get buy-in um, for, for diversity and inclusion goals and get the support of, of, of business leaders. You know, how can HR and, and diversity and inclusion departments work together to interrupt bias in some basic in some of the basic business systems? People, the heads of diversity and inclusion are experts in diversity and inclusion. Um, but the if you have bias in your business systems, typically the heads of DEI don't own the business systems. They don't own performance evaluations. You know, that's HR. They don't own uh, hiring. That's recruiting. And so this is part of the organizational change, um, the organizational change challenge. I have heads of DEI telling me a, a lot. I have, I don't, I have influence, not power. And one of my strong messages to CEOs is that if you're serious about this as a business goal, you have to give, set someone up for success and give them the authority and the power they need to address the problem. Now, whether that's going to be the head of DEI has power uh, in conjunction with the people who own performance evaluations to interrupt bias in them, or whether it's going to be the head of HR, or whether it's going to be the head of ops, that's going to vary from company to company. But the strong message to CEOs is just hiring a head of diversity and inclusion and giving um, her money for programming. You're that's not going to be effective. I can tell you right now. It's great for my bottom line. I mean, they, you know, people bring me in for tens of thousands of dollars to chit and chat, and I'm perfectly willing to chit and chat. And I think that probably helps a little, but it's not going to solve the problem. Before we move to the, the final question, has what happened last year in, with with George Floyd's murder and 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 the the climate that that seems to create amongst organisations seemingly paying more attention to this? And I hope it wasn't just lip service. Have you seen that acting as a catalyst? Um, to, to, to drive things uh, forward um, in, the, in the last... Absolutely. George Floyd's murder 
uh, did change the atmosphere. And the United States, and interesting to hear it, you think it's also maybe true in the UK, there's really been um, a moment of racial reckoning. Now, you know, it's not as if in the US we haven't had these moments before, and we ain't solved the problem, in case you didn't notice. I'm hopeful, but not sanguine. Um, uh, but one of the key, most concrete difference we see now is that people were, um, were who were apprehensive about um, using the workplace experiences survey to find out actually what's going on um, and to share the data. <clears throat> um, some of it with everyone, a select portion of the data, and all of it with top leadership. Companies, and that has changed overnight. People are now willing to do that and say, uh, okay, we're serious. And the first step in being serious is to find out what's happening so we can establish a baseline and measure progress. And so I really do think that there has been a change. I also think in, I mean, I've studied um, race for well, 10 years. Um, and when I start, started to study race, I was really aghast at the experiences that some people report. Uh, I mean, especially the levels of just raw disrespect, especially that black people encounter was just shocking and disheartening to me. And I think many more white people now have come to the realization of uh, just what it's like to try to navigate these workplaces as a person of color. Uh, I do. Um, I'm hopeful there, too. Good. Well, hopefully, if we were to talk in two or three years time, that that kind of progress has been sustained and, and hopefully extrapolated as well. So uh, if I can add one other point, David, I think one of the things, another issue I've worked on for decades is um, how the impact of motherhood on women's careers and the impact of caregiving on people's careers. And I also think um, that the last two years have really brought that home in a very important way. And before um, that was just like, oh, women make different choices. This has nothing to do with the workplace. And I think there's far more recognition now that, um, no, when women leave their jobs, it's often that they're driven out. It's not that they're cheerfully opting out. So I think that has also changed uh, in the last couple of years. Good. So moving to the last couple of, of, of questions, Joan. Um, so we're asking um, this question on everyone in, in this series, but I think. Um, you can probably tackle it from the lens of, 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 of tackling bias. Um, how can HR help the business identify the critical skills for the future? And as I said, maybe you can tackle that from a, a lens of, of tackling bias and, and what skills do the, do the workforce need to do that? I think that, the, that HR needs to understand and communicate exactly how bias plays out in everyday ways. Um, for example, um, other people get credit for ideas I originally offered. Much lower levels of white men say yes than women or people of color. Women tend to get interrupted much more than men do. Um, the, um, when the behavior that in a white man would probably be seen as a career-enhancing passion for the business may be seen in a black man as intimidating or in a, uh, in a white woman as evidence that she, is, um, uh, she has sharp elbows. These are really, really concrete things that happen every day. 
And it's not enough just to provide an abstract description of like the cognitive bases of bias. That's interesting, but it's a college lecture. You need to explain to people precisely what's happening on the ground and then provide a forum where they can work with their colleagues to say, this is how I would feel comfortable interrupting this. And it's usually not going to be, um, to, to use Google's phrase, calling out the bias. That's bias. You know, most people aren't going to do that. Most people have other ways to spend their political capital. What they need is low-key, um, cordial ways that nonetheless interrupt the bias seamlessly without antagonizing everyone. And that's really what people, we have found that if you give people those ways, or more precisely, if you allow them to explore those and find those ways with their colleagues, they are just phenomenally relieved that they finally know what to do. Great. And, And finally, is there a question that I should have asked you but didn't? I think you did a pretty good job, personally. Well, that, that and good, and that's that's very kind of you, Joan. And I think what you've what you've really done over the over the past forty minutes or so is I even now even more want to read the book because um, I, I, I definitely want to get to some of the points that that you've touched on over the over the last forty minutes. So, so thanks very much for being a guest on on the Digital HR Leaders podcast, Joan. Can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you, find out more about your work? And- Follow you maybe on social media if you do that. Yes. Well, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Joan C. Williams. My webpage is joancwilliams.com. And then they can, I would strongly urge them to look at the Bias Interrupters website. That's www.biasinterrupters.org. And that provides some of the tools that I've talked about today, which are open access and free to use and proven to be effective. So they've been used you know, throughout the world and down access more than a quarter million times. So I would really recommend people check them out. Thank you, Joe. And of course, Bias Interrupted is out on the 16th of November. So if you're listening Indeed. to this podcast before the 16th of November, it is available for pre-order. So probably through Amazon or, 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 or any bookstore. So uh, Joe, thanks so much for, for being on the show. Really enjoyed our discussion and yeah, look forward to reading the book. Thanks, David. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and our weekly newsletter at myhrfuture.com. Next week on the podcast, We'll be speaking to Janice Burns, Chief People Officer at Degreed. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and take care.